Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews 11. Chapter 6 was our memory verse. Now without faith it is impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. But we couldn't really get to that verse without verse 5. So what we're going to look at this morning is uh, Hebrews 11, 5, and 6. Uh, as we know, Billy Graham died, I guess now it's been last week that he died, but uh, various events surrounding his funeral have been going on this week, and his, his actual funeral was Friday, I believe, uh, in, in North Carolina. Uh, there have been countless books written. I'm not going to give a complete history of Billy Graham's life, but uh, he was saved in 1934 at the age of 16. Um, he just felt like he needed to uh, go to church, actually, and there was a revival happening. Um, that's an interesting history for you to look up, uh, the connections between some noted evangelists and preachers that led to Billy Graham's salvation. Uh, I don't remember it exactly. Dwight uh, D.L. Moody is in there. Charles Spurgeon is in there. Just some faithfulness of people uh, usually in a very, what they would have thought was minor, middle-of-nowhere situation. And yet we get to, because of these little points of obedience, we get to Billy Graham, arguably, other than maybe Paul, the greatest evangelist who ever lived. So, age of 16, he, he, he got saved, he felt the call to preach. Uh, much later, well, not much later, it was only three years, but he, not through high school, he went to college, um, transferred from where he was to the Florida Bible Institute in 1937, and felt the call to preach there. And he was not interested in that call. You're like, really, Billy Graham? You, yeah, of course, he's been preaching since he could talk, right? No. Uh, he, he, what I read said he struggled, and, and he said this in his biography, he struggled to surrender his will to God's will. He wasn't sure he was thrilled with the thought of preaching for the rest of his life. One night in 1938, however, Billy prostrated himself before the Lord and prayed, Oh God, if you want me to serve you, I will. We put people on pedestals. We believe that these strong Christians have always been strong Christians. We believe that the, the, the Bible characters, when they show tremendous faith, if we don't have their backstory, most of them we do, but if we don't have their backstory, we just assume they always showed tremendous faith. But what we see is that every one of them, both biblical and modern and everybody in between, came to a crisis of belief. They had to come to a point where they decided, I'm either going to follow God or I'm not. I'm going to obey God or I am not. Billy Graham, just like the rest of us, had that moment of decision to make. Read with me Hebrews 11, 5 through 6. By faith, Enoch was taken away, and so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away... He was approved as one who pleased God. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
it's, it was an interesting verse, verse 6, to, to choose as the memory verse. And that's what I'm finding as I go through this and, and try to both preach the verse and the, the week's lessons. The memory verse doesn't, uh, rarely actually, follows the five daily topics that we have to do in our, in our lessons. Uh, this week was no, no different. The, the message of the verse is pretty clear as it pertains to the entire unit, but not as it pertains to those individual headlines or, or the, the well, that's all I can come up with, headlines of those, uh, those daily lessons. What we see, though, it, it, hidden almost in verse 5 is that Enoch had a crisis of belief. He had to make a decision about whether he was going to follow God, just like the rest of us. We don't have a lot of details, but we do know he had a choice to make at some point. So we're going we're to see that as we move through it. We see the beginning of verse 5 here, and it tells us that by faith, Enoch. Immediately as we read the, uh, the opening passage, the opening verse, we see that Enoch experienced a turning point. That was the title of our day one lesson, a turning point. We know Enoch experienced this turning point because it says, by faith. Well, he wasn't born with that faith. None of us are born with that faith. We all have to make a decision about whether we are going to follow God or not, whether we're going to believe him or not. But we know right off the bat that Enoch had faith. But he had very particular faith. He had faith in God. Uh, faith in the one true God. Uh, faith in the creator. Uh, faith in the sustainer of all things. And the reason, one of the reasons we know that this was not a guarantee. We read the stories of the the patriarchs, the, uh, the pre-flood patriarchs and their long lives, and we just kind of assume they were all good, you know, right? I, unless we really read carefully, and of course we know that Cain killed Abel. Uh, we know that uh, um, Nimrod was, uh, was a Nimrod. Um, uh, isn't that funny? Uh, anyway, uh, we, we know that they weren't all wonderful, perfect people. We know that they weren't great. It, it, we see it here in particular with Enoch's descendants, Lamech and Methuselah. Methuselah, longest-lived fella ever, 969 years. They died the year of the flood. Now, we don't know if they died in the flood but it looks pretty suspicious. Uh, and if I remember correctly, Lamech, Methuselah lived 969, so he was probably about done, but Lamech only lived 777. Seems like he died a little early compared to everybody else. So you wonder, I wondered, did these guys die in the flood? And if you don't believe me, I've got a little uh, graphic up there for you so you can see uh, that's coming. There it is. Don't know how well you can read that. Oh, it's better back here than it is over there. Uh, you see that, uh, yeah, Lamech lived 777 years. Methuselah lived 969 years. And their cutoff date is the same. Their cutoff date is the flood. Again, we don't know that they died in the flood, but it does look uh, suspicious. And, and look who else 
Enoch was, lived 365 years, but look at how their years overlap back. Jared, Mahalalel, Kenan. We've got all of these guys that very likely, we don't know, but likely participated in the pre-flood evil. We know, though, that Enoch did not. Enoch lived during the pre-flood evil, but he didn't didn't participate. Uh, We see that. And look at his short years. I mean, it's almost like he got gypped, except, you know, we know how these passages end, so he didn't get gypped at all. He lived during this pre-flood evil and didn't participate because he made a decision. Enoch made a decision. He came to a turning point where he was going to be different than everybody around him. All of his family, best we can tell. All of his friends, best we can tell. Because there weren't too many good people walking around on these days, or during these days. So, by faith, it says Enoch uh, was taken away, and so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For because he, before, before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleases God. Now, that's a lot of uh, verses there, that uh, a lot of words there we're going to cover here in this short, short section. So what I have on the screen is just, Enoch was taken away. He was one who pleased God. Day two told us that encounters with God require faith. If you want to experience God, you must have faith. You don't get an experience God, of, with God without faith. Now, you may get the the initial experience where God calls you, draws you, and you experience that. But beyond that, as a believer, we only experience God if we have faith. We only encounter God uh, with faith. Well, what Enoch experienced was most certainly an encounter with God, right? I mean, if we, we read on, we're kind of getting uh, right here. He, he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away before he was taken away. He didn't die. He was translated. He was, he was picked up and put somewhere else. That is a pretty impressive experience with God. That phrase, he could not be found, the tense of the verb there in Greek tells us they tried. He was repeatedly looked for. Y'all, have you seen Enoch? No, I've been looking for days. I can't find him anywhere. Where did you see him last? I don't remember. He was just out walking somewhere, and then he never came back. We've been looking and looking and looking, and we can't find the dude. We see that. It was uh, that, that taken away, that one-time major encounter, we would call it, with God was actually, actually the result of a lifetime of encounters with God. It wasn't just that one day Enoch decided... Oh, yeah, that God thing is pretty cool. And suddenly God said, whoo, got you, took him up. This was a lifetime of encounters with God. It it says, uh, the, the scripture says that he was approved. Before he was taken up, he was approved. He was approved finally. It was determined, it was done, there was no more uh, um, examination needed, there was no more time needed to test him. He was approved, and he was approved by God. It didn't matter that men did or did not approve of Enoch. What mattered was that God approved of Enoch. 
this lifetime of, of encounters uh, required Enoch to choose God over evil, and that choosing of God over evil required faith on Enoch's part. When everybody around you is doing evil, is following their own way, is doing what they think is right, and you are the only one going a separate direction, is that easy? You're right. That requires faith on your part to say, you know what, I'm going to stand up. I'm going to do what I know is right, what the Bible is clear about, regardless of what anybody else is doing. And as best as we can tell, that is exactly what Enoch did. He had great faith. He had a lifetime of encounters. As a matter of fact, what happened to him was he was walking along with God, and that walk with God ended up not at home, but in heaven. Genesis 5, and 24 tell us that Enoch walked with God. And last night I, I looked, I went back to see who else of the pre-flood patriarchs walked with God. You know how many others? Prior to Enoch, you might think Adam or Seth. None of them are described that way. None of the ones that came after Enoch are described that way until Noah. Of the pre-flood patriarchs, Enoch and Noah are, are the only ones that we are told explicitly walked with God. So we see with Enoch a lifetime of encounters with God leading to what was uh, a final and what we would say God-sized encounter with God. That was our day three uh, heading for that lesson. Encounters with God are always God-sized. Well, I think to be walking along one day, praying, talking to God, and suddenly be taken up and not be there anymore, I would call that a God-sized encounter. And while that particular encounter is something beyond what anyone except Elijah has experienced, that doesn't mean that anything less is less than God-sized. We regularly, if we are listening, listening, if we are obeying, if we are paying attention, we regularly can experience God-sized encounters with God. When Emily didn't want to do this study or didn't like the study because of what it was doing in her life and that I pick on her only because she was the video because I think if we had a show of hands of everybody who felt that way initially and maybe still feels that way some we'd see a lot of hands go up about this is really rattling my cage and I don't like it that is a God-sized encounter every time when God rattles your cage that's a God-sized encounter. Every encounter with God is a God-sized encounter. There's nothing insignificant. There's no small thing in the kingdom. Yeah, I, I wish now that I had looked back a little more closely at the spiritual lineage of uh, uh, Billy Graham. Because I know, uh, I'm, I'm confident that Spurgeon and, and Moody were in that lineage 
one of them preached to somebody and that person heard the gospel and somebody preached to this other one and Moody heard the gospel. But if you go back to Spurgeon, his story of how he came to Christ, he was, I've forgotten how many, uh, how old, 8, 9, 10, maybe a young teenager, maybe 13 or 14, I don't remember. His church was closed because it was a particularly horrible weather day in England, happens pretty often, but this time it was actually snowing and nobody was getting out. And he went not to the church he normally went to, but the closest church to his house, if I remember correctly, which was a Methodist church. And there were about six or seven people there that Sunday morning. The pastor couldn't even make it to church that day. A deacon had to preach. And the deacon was not prepared to preach. Uh, And, um, oh gosh. And the deacon got up and, and he only knew basically to say, you must be born again. And I think that's wrong, but that's the gist of what he was saying. It was a verse he was, he was quoting, and he just quoted it over and over. You must be born again. And I think he kind of just looked at all six or seven people. And you must be born again. And when that deacon looked at Spurgeon, Spurgeon realized he must be born again. Now, that deacon could have canceled church, said, no, nah, there's six or seven of us here. No, the pastor can't, pastor can't come. We're just going to take up an offering and leave. Because you've got to take the offering, right? I mean, so we're going to take up an offering and leave. But he didn't. He got up and he shared the gospel. All he did, Spurgeon got saved. Down the line, we get to Billy Graham. But because one, did that deacon ever think anything was coming out of that? He got up and preached to seven people the same phrase over and over and over again? No. And yet, probably the greatest Baptist preacher that ever lived, Charles Spurgeon, got saved that morning. There are no little things. Every encounter with God is God-sized. Then we move on to what our memory verse was this week, verse 6. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God. They, the author here of Hebrews is explaining how Enoch, or, or explaining how what happened to Enoch happened. How was he just walking along one day? How did he walk with God? How, did he, uh, how was he approved by God? Why did he get taken up at 365 years old instead of living to be 900 like everybody else? Well, because without faith, it was impossible to please God. Enoch pleased God with his faith, not by his actions or his lineage. He could have said, you know, I'm just a few generations from Adam. You know, pretty big deal. We're, we're the first and stuff. He didn't say that. He didn't come to God with anything but his own faith. He came empty. He came not. He doesn't say he pleased God by walking with him. It says he walked with him, and his faith pleased God. And we don't know what Enoch did. We don't know how he lived his life, other than it says he walked with God. We don't know what he, how he witnessed to those uh, around him who were uh, bringing on the flood, uh, how he told them this is an evil generation and, and we need to straighten up and follow the Lord. We don't know any of that, but we do know whom he believed. We know that he had faith. We know in whom he placed that faith. We know that his actions were a direct result of that faith. 
Day four told us what you do reveals what you believe. If you say you believe one thing, but you act like something else, then you don't believe that thing. You say you do, but you don't, because your actions disprove that. With Enoch, we see that his actions proved what he believed. He pleased God by faith, by walking with him, and then that faith led him to resist the evil of the world around him. Again, that is not described to us. That is obvious to us because in the midst of this evil, when his own offspring were apparently not following God, very likely his own uh, ancestors that were still living were not following God, Enoch chose to. Enoch chose to be obedient. That faith that he had led him to resist the evil. By faith, Enoch pleased God. Without faith it is impossible to please God. He goes on and finishes that verse. Since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So what does that faith look like? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But, but what does that faith look like in reality? Because we can say, yes, I have faith. I've just, I've just told you. You can say you can believe something and not live like it. You can believe something and have your actions deny what you say. So without faith, it is impossible to please God. Well, what does that look like, Hebrews author, uh, for us to have faith? And he goes on and tells us, draw near to him, believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. Day 5 said true faith requires action. True faith requires us to do something. Uh, True faith does not leave us in our seat. True faith does not leave us on the sidelines or on the bench. True faith does not say, thanks for believing, you're good till you die and go to heaven. True faith requires action. And we see that action in the life of Enoch. See, these verses, this verse, verse 6, is still describing Enoch. It's still telling us more about what Enoch did in general terms that we can in turn apply to ourselves. So, In those days, it was a major crisis of belief to live out this verse. For Enoch to stand up to his family and friends and say, No, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to be obedient. He had at some point a turning point where he had to decide and say, I am going to choose to follow God over my family and over my friends. That was a crisis of belief because what would happen to him? This was a lawless, evil age. They had just as soon killed him for that as anything else. I mean, when when God has decided that evil is so great that I've got to start over, clearly anything goes in the lives of those people, or anything went in the lives of those people. Enoch had to choose God over his family. He chose to believe. He chose to put actions to his faith by drawing near first and then believing. Belief in existence here is recognizing authority. It actually goes deeper than that. We can can see uh, today how folks don't even believe God exists 
We can also understand how salvation through Jesus Christ is not possible if you don't at le- begin with the very most basic belief of God's existence. Totally get that. But there, there are a lot of ways we could look at this and go deeper in it, but let's take the 35,000-foot view and see that belief in existence is recognizing authority. If God says there's a certain way to come to him, then that is the only way to come to him. That's the authority. If God says you must be obedient in order to prove your faith, then we must be obedient. If God tells us, uh, approaches us, if we have an encounter with God through Scripture or some other circumstance, and we hear God tell us to do something, we feel God's leading, we see where He is working, and we know that is an invitation to join Him, then it is by His authority that He does all those things. And we as believers don't have the option to walk away and say, No, thank you, not right now, I'm busy. I mean, we have the option, but... For believers, that shouldn't be an option. So belief in existence here, we're going to take as recognizing authority. And then he says, uh, you believe that he exists and that he rewards uh, those who seek him. Belief in rewards is faith for salvation. Now, does God reward us for obedience? I absolutely believe he does. Are you going to get rich for your obedience? No. Uh, are, 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 is your reward going to be what you think? Very likely not. As a matter of fact, most of the time, our obedience will lead not to earthly rewards, but earthly persecution. That's a promise, not from me, but from Scripture. That if we follow him, if we follow Jesus, slave is not greater than the master. If they treated the master that way, they're going to treat his students that way, his slaves that way. We will be persecuted for obedience. So he's not talking about here rewards, temporal rewards, earthly rewards. Everything's going to be hunky-dory when you come to Jesus and when you follow him in obedience. No, in fact, things may get harder before they get better. But what will happen is that he will reward you as he sees fit. He will provide for you exactly what you need. Now, if you've read some of the uh, examples in experiencing God this week, you, you see multiple examples of people stepping out on faith, being obedient, and God providing. But all you see is God providing. You don't see, oh, Lord, we need... Uh, this and you get that times 10, most likely what you see is God provides this. God provides exactly what is needed. And if he provides more, then that's just a blessing that he has given to you to turn around and give back to him. But ultimately, this belief in rewards, if we believe that God exists and believe in, and recognize his authority and recognize that his authority is over all things, including salvation of our souls, then we come to believing in, that he rewards those who seek him. So once we feel that draw and once we feel the Holy Spirit lead us and we begin to seek God, then the ultimate reward that we can have is, faith, uh, is, is salvation through faith. Your ultimate reward is heaven. If God never does another thing for you, I don't care how old you are, if he never does another thing for you, he's done all he needs needs to by giving you salvation. 
I would have liked a few more amens on that, but that's all right, you know, uh, that's okay. Um, I'll, I'll explain it a little bit better, and maybe, maybe you can agree with me over lunch today or something as you think about it. There's nothing that we, he needs to do. Let, folks, he didn't have to give us salvation. We didn't deserve that. So if he never does anything else, we should be happy. Now, we're, a lot of us aren't. We want to be out of debt and have a nice home and a car and my kids to obey and, uh, you know, folks, parents not to be sick and everything to be nice in life. That's just not the way it works. And some of those things may work out and some of those things may be uh, God's blessing uh, out of the blue miraculously. Some of those things may be the blessing of hard work and, and God say and do these things and we'll get you there. And, but if none of that ever happens, if there is no long life and, and great health and there is no wealth and there is no uh, pain-free living, God has done all he needs to for us. And we come to him believing that he can save us, that that is the ultimate reward. But y'all, that is a crisis of belief. That decision to trust salvation is going to trigger a crisis of belief. It won't be a believer's crisis of belief. It won't be me as a believer saying, feeling like God is leading this direction. He, this is what he is doing, and obviously I'm to join him there. Now I must decide if I will do that. That's a different instance than the salvation, because you will be coming to him as an unbeliever, someone who's never trusted Christ, someone who's never experienced salvation. And you're going to look at that and say, there's just no way this is true. Or I'm, I'm, I'm not confident about this. Or how does it work? Or there, there, I've got too many questions. Or certainly not. You, you're going to have all of these reasons why this isn't the case. And you're going to have a crisis of belief. And at some point, you are going to have to submit to God. Submit to salvation through Jesus Christ. If you're going to experience salvation, you, you've got to say, no longer do I trust me. I'm going to get over this crisis of belief and move on. For some of you, today is a turning point. I would dare say, as we have studied experiencing God and as we have learned to recognize that any time we open God's Word, any time we read God's Word, that is an experience with God. And any experience with God leads us to make a decision to follow Him, to change, to alter our lives, and it will almost always also lead to a crisis of belief. Then I would say that everyone in here this morning, for you, today is a turning point. You need to decide something today. And I don't know what that is. And I don't know if you think it's a big thing or if it's a small thing. But if it's a God thing, there is no size limitation to it. If it's a God thing, it's to be done. If it's a God thing, it is important. Period. No matter how minuscule it might seem to you, God uses little things to do great things. His economy doesn't depend on big equals big. His economy depends on obedience equaling what he does. And, and that's all we need to do. So today is a turning point for you. Now this, this encounter with God that you have had today, and maybe today is the culmination of it. Maybe it's been a few days coming. Maybe it's been a few weeks coming, a few months. Maybe you've been arguing with God for years about something. 
doesn't matter. This encounter with God will require faith. You will have to exercise faith like you haven't before. It's going to make you do something that you don't think you can. You are going to have to exercise faith. And this encounter is God-sized. Despite its appearance, despite what you think, oh God, this really doesn't matter, right? I mean, if I don't obey you in this little thing, that's not a big deal, is it? Really? Ask your mama what it was like when you didn't fold the socks. Socks were a little thing. That's just a little thing, mama. Yeah, so was the switch she used. That's just a little thing, too. It's God-sized. Don't write it off as something that doesn't matter, because if God is leading you to do it, then you must do it. It is a God-sized encounter. And your decision about how you're going to handle this encounter with God reveals what you believe. Do you believe God is uh, do you believe God exists? Do you believe in his authority over your life? Do you believe he rewards those who seek him? Do you believe that you can step out in faith at this moment and do something step into a chasm whose bottom you can't see and whose side you can't reach, but you only know God told you to step? Is your faith big enough to do that? Do you believe God can, can keep you, can hold you, can sustain you, can get you to the other side? You nod your head, yes, then why aren't you stepping? Your decision reveals your belief. As long as you stand on that ledge looking across, you don't believe God. You believe you. You believe what you believe about God. But you don't believe God. And then finally... The corollary to that is if you trust God, you must act. You say you believe, then jump. Go. Do it. Whatever it is. You say you want salvation. You, you say you understand your sinfulness. You say you know that things aren't right in your life, but if I turn my life over to God, what's he going to ask me to do? Who cares? If he's calling you, go. If he's calling you, come. Come. Give him your life and see what he'll do. It'll be the most amazing ride ever if you will just trust him. Your belief in obedience, it's going to cause a life crisis, y'all. You're going to question. People are going to question. You may be in a sea of people going one way when you are the only one going the other. And the temptation will be great to turn around and go the way everybody else is going do not do that. It's a crisis, but it's a crisis God controls. It's a crisis in His hands, and a crisis in His hands is no crisis. It's an opportunity. It's a promise. It's a future. It's a vision. It's a hope. That's what a crisis of belief leads to. So how will you respond today to this crisis of belief you're experiencing? Billy Graham responded. He fought it. But when the time came, oh Lord, what did he say? Let me find it. Oh God, if you want me to serve you, I will. Is that your prayer this morning? Oh God, if you want me to serve you, I will. Uh uh. Some of you think you're getting out of it. Okay, God, yep, if you want me to serve you, I will. No, no, no. You know exactly what he's calling you to do. You're going to try to get out of it this morning by saying, oh, Billy Graham said, oh Lord, if you call, yep, okay, Lord, if you're calling me. No, no. He's already called you. 
you got the list in front of you. you got the honeydews. You know what he's telling you to do, and yet you're still sitting on your intentions, um, waiting for it to get easier or to be clearer. It will not be any clearer. This morning, if, you're, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, you're going to have a crisis of belief this morning. Because I'm going to tell you that uh, God's holy and just is going to judge sin. I'm going to tell you that you are sinful, willfully sinful, fallen, destined for everlasting torment and judgment because of what God has done about sin. That's how he will handle sin. But Jesus is the perfect son of God, and he lived to make you whole. He lived to forgive you. He took our place and our sin on the cross, and he died for everyone, and he rose three days later. And then you have to make this crisis you have to make this decision, this crisis of belief where you have to repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation by believing in him and then live for him. Well, how does, how does that work? Well, I want to show you. This is you, and this is your life. Everything you've ever done, good and bad, that's your life. Sin is in, in there. Sin's a part of that. And I think we'd all agree that in our record books, we would have sin. God is up here. And there's a chasm, there's a, 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 a distance between us that he will not go through. He will not go through our sin to get to us. He will not keep it. He will not allow it to stay. And because of our sin, we can't get to him. So there's a barrier that is impassable, except that Jesus came. God sent his son, who had no sin, to, to, to uh, be righteousness for us. And he, he took the cross. He, stood on that, he hung on that cross. And Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each have turned to our own way. Our sin, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Jesus took that sin. He took it away from us. He was dead. He was buried for three days. He came back. He rose again. Then 40 days later, he went to be with God. So you see the sin problem's taken care of, but there's still a gap. There's still a chasm. There's still a distance. We must choose to follow Christ. We must make a decision. If you jump out of an airplane, you can flap your arms all you want to. You can kick your feet. You can scream. And I would. But if you have a parachute, what do you need to do? Pull that ripcord. Trusting Jesus Christ is pulling the ripcord. How stupid of you, pardon me, to hit the ground at however many hundred miles an hour wearing a parachute because you said, oh, I trusted my arms. I can kick my way out of this. No, pull the ripcord. Trust Christ and he will unite you and God. Sin is taken care of. You're not sinless, but the opportunity is there to experience forgiveness. So will you do that this morning? Will you trust Christ for your salvation? You need to respond. What will your response be? Pray with me this morning. Father, thank you that you have provided the parachute. The, 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 we just need to pull that ripcord. God, and I know that this creates a crisis in our hearts. How I don't need Jesus. I, don't, I can do this on my own. I can, I can wave and flap my arms and kick my feet, and I won't hit the ground and squish. But Lord, we know that 
It is only by trusting Jesus Christ that we can experience salvation, that we can be saved. And we thank you that you have provided that way clearly. Lord, for believers here experiencing a crisis of belief because you have called them to something and they don't understand how it can be that way, how you can see them past it. Uh, Lord, by faith, it is impossible. It is impossible to please you without faith. And we must believe that you exist and that you reward those who seek you. So, Lord, I pray this morning that believers would believe in your authority and believe that you will work out whatever you're calling us to. You will not call us to something you don't have the end plan for. So, Lord, I pray this morning that this will be a turning point, that the crisis of belief will be overcome, and we will follow you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what's your decision this morning? What do you need to do? Do you need to trust Christ? Do you need to overcome that crisis of belief? Do you need, as a believer, to give him something, to do something that you've been called to do, maybe for a long time, but you've not been willing to do it? This morning, as we stand and as we sing, You respond to God as he leads and works on your life this morning.